Oh, hi there. It's Monday and it's the last one in July. I'm sorry that I had to remind you of that this morning, but on today's show we'll be talking about Trump's latest racist attack on Congressman Elijah Cummings, and I'm talking to Orange the New Black actor Laura Gomez. Mm, well, you stick right there and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Good morning, Twitter. I swear I'm awake. <laughs> I had a restful weekend, and I need to wake up, actually. <laughs> a restful weekend. I really did nothing. I did the exact opposite of Alex's weekend, because I had friends visiting, and they said to me, friend, let's just sit by a pool. And I said, you are my best friends for life. But Alex, you did the exact opposite. Opposite. I sure did. Tell the people what happened. Well, I had to go to a wedding, and I don't often drive. Uh, I definitely don't drive uh, at rush hour. There I am um, with my fave wedding date of all time. Oh, and uh, it turns out rush hour traffic, not a fun time. Literally took four hours to go three blocks in Soho and took eight hours to get to this wedding that should have taken about four hours and 12 minutes approximately to get to. This is so, so funny to me, and I'm sorry I'm laughing at your pain because I really do feel bad for you. No, you don't. You do not feel bad. A, you're uh, you're right, thinking about right all the here. cocktails you yeah. drank, all your friends you came and visited. A little traffic I did not sit <laughs> um, But when Alex first told me about this trip, I thought, oh, she's taking a train. But when I found out that day she was driving, I was like, ooh, Lord, may the, may the odds be in your favor. Girl. Thank you, thank you. I have to say, wedding was delightful. Great to see the fam, all that good stuff. Um, will I rethink my my transportation options in the future. Yeah. Note yeah. to self, everyone, the Holland Tunnel on Friday. Not a good time. Hellscape. Not a good time. Yeah. Well, you live, you learn. So here's a tweet from page six. Meghan Markle, Prince Harry reportedly banned neighbors from speaking to them. Oop. And another tweet from the Duchess, uh, about the Duchess of Sussex from Ahmed Scobie. Duchess Meghan is British Vogue's first September issue guest editor. Her Forces for Change special will highlight female changemakers who are reshaping society and includes her interview with Michelle Obama and a conversation between Prince Harry and Jane Goodall. <gasps> My Queen Meghan. <laughs> You're Queen Meghan. So, so uh, yeah, apparently she and Harry are not down with the neighbors talking to them or offering them favors or treating them in, in a neighborly <laughs> way. However, the palace denies this. Uh, mm. They gave a statement to the Huffington Post that said the Duke and Duchess didn't request this, didn't know about it, and had nothing to do with the content or guidance offered. Let me translate that for y'all. The palace is saying <laughs> it should be known and inferred that you do not knock on the door of the, the duchess, the princess, the whatever royal in the UK. The royal ever. highness. Like, my God, like, I, you are not even my next door neighbor where I, like, my neighbors I do not walk up to and ask for sugar or talk to. I have Amazon Prime for that. If my neighbor was Meghan Markle, I was going to be so excited that she lives even in breathing distance of me and be fine with that and let her be. I don't care that all my tax dollars, which that's a whole other argument. A whole other like, thing. A whole the, other the thing. People of the UK pay for these lavish lifestyles and there's no power oh, control yeah, to them. But yeah. anyway, Meghan deserves, she deserves it all and you should watch out for her because she's walking and don't look at her in her face. Well, I just want to know, like, what is the chutzpah that it takes to be like, I'm going to go <laughs> ask for a cup of sugar from the royals who live next door to me. I mean, yeah. that's really something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I can't, I'm, I'm wondering if this is maybe a rule that you're going to institute here in the production meeting. I may. Nobody, nobody offer any favors to Zach. Don't look Zach in the eye unless he addresses you first. I kind of like this. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not doing this. But let's take it to the timeline. 
What's the worst thing your neighbor has ever done? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Can I tell you about this one time that... Uh, Alex has so all the neighbor stories. I, I have so many neighbor stories from living in many New York uh, apartment buildings. Um, so one of my neighbors is a, a dear friend who had a social gathering mm-hmm. and everybody had to take their shoes off outside of his apartment. Another neighbor who was passing through swiped a pair of shoes and somebody had to like borrow somebody's shoes when they <laughs> left this party. The shoes were later returned, I think after a passive-aggressive note. Um, the neighbor who stole the shoes, That's I think, worked. felt a little guilty, had some feels that they had taken some poor person's shoes who was just I, enjoying a party. You so, know what? This reminds neighbors, me of an episode of neighbors. all of our favorite shows, Sex in the City, where Carrie Bradshaw herself had her Manolo Blahniks taken at a baby's birthday by a neighbor. So, you know, art, art imitates life. Art God. imitates bad neighbors. Ooh. All right. Well, over the weekend, the president went on another racist tirade in several tweets. He targeted Representative Elijah Cummings of Baltimore, Maryland, calling his district a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. Here's a tweet from the Daily Beast. The president is no master political strategist, but he has run the political and legal math and is betting correctly so far. There will be no real consequences for his behavior. Goldie Taylor, editor-at-large of the Daily Beast, joins us now to discuss. Good morning, Goldie. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Great to have you. Wish it was a different conversation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So over the weekend, there were quite a few tweets uh, about this topic, but one word stood out amongst them, infested. What is the significance of that word? You know, there is a, and by the way, there were some 15 tweets uh, over the weekend until this morning. And so he's still talking about, uh, Donald Trump is still talking about who he refers to as King Elijah. And so there are a couple of, you know, very racially charged, racially infused, racist ways in which the president is uh, addressing Representative Cummings. You know, first of all, the word infestation refers to rodents and cockroaches and other things, you know, vermin like that. But if you look at African-American culture, if you look at what's happened uh, traditionally uh, when you malign and demean uh, Jewish people and uh, using the word infestation generally refers to people. Uh, It's no accident, no accident at all that this president uses words like infestation uh, to refer to cities like Baltimore or Atlanta or Los Angeles or Chicago that are cities that are predominantly comprised of people of color and that he aims these targets, uh, aims these attacks on people who are predominantly, and there's a theme here, people of color. And so if you look at John Lewis or what he said about uh, Representative Cummings over the weekend, what he said about the squad over the last few weeks, there is a running theme here. He reserves his most uh, vile and vicious and abhorrent attacks for black people. He reserves his most vile and abhorrent attacks for cities that are predominantly uh, comprised of people of color. And so there is a running theme with this president. It's something that I think most of us knew prior to him becoming elected. He's an abhorrent, you know, uh, virulent racist, and it's revealing itself more and more by the day. He's doubling down, not backing up. Mm. Now you mentioned uh, the cities, and in particular Baltimore. Um, How did you see Baltimore reacting to all this? You know, I... (laughs) I love Baltimore. I've spent a good bit of time there, both in good times and bad. I was there to cover the Freddie uh, Gray verdict and in the aftermath um, and you know some of the very serious dilemmas that happen uh, or unfold themselves on its west side. It reminds me of my hometown in St. Louis. Uh, its east side and its north side both uh, are suffering under decades of, of, of neglect and uh, lack of investments uh, in, in either its people or its infrastructure. Baltimore happens to be one of the oldest cities in the country and its history, its rich tapestry, you know, the people who live there, 
glorious one and all. It is not unlike any other big American city, however. But when you saw this weekend, the people of Baltimore coming together and it started with a hashtag, I think April Ryan started it. And it, you know, we are Baltimore. We all really are. You know, Baltimore is uh, not nearly as poor uh, by 20 percent uh, as uh, the state of Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell and Ryan and uh, Rand Paul happened to hail from. You know, Baltimore is made up of rich, of poor, of well-educated, of people who are struggling on the margins. It is a very rich tapestry that is more embl- in, in emblematic of you know what the United States happens to look like. And so when I saw them coming together, I certainly was not surprised. That is quintessential Baltimore. And if Donald Trump wants to take a fight to Baltimore, I'm sure the people welcome it. Mm, and not only do they welcome welcome it, Goldie, but the local paper, the Baltimore Sun, really pushed back on President Trump. Talk to us about what happened there, because I saw that tweet go quite viral. I read it and had to read it twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and this is no and this is no 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 slant on my home city of Atlanta today. You know, when Donald Trump took after us over, you know, the MLK weekend in, I think it was uh, January of 2017. Now, our newspaper didn't strike back so hard, but, you know, those are those of us like myself and former Kasim Reed and others who really said, hold on a minute, brother, you can't talk about the fifth district that way. Um, but to watch what the Baltimore Sun did, you know, they took out a bat <laughs> you know, and said, look here, my friend, if you're going to come rolling around our neighborhood, you know, trash talking us in that way, We've got something to say about you and we've got something to say about our city. I was pretty proud and pretty amazed uh, to watch the editorial board come together and put together such a forceful op-ed that really was a stinging rebuke of this presidency, of this administration and of his recent, you know, sort of uh, pension for getting onto racial tirades. Now, I want to talk about some of the uh, reactions to all of this from lawmakers, or I should say the lack of reactions. I want to bring up uh, something that you tweeted, Goldie, which was this president could show up in blackface, toting a cane and singing Old Man River and still never be condemned by congressional Republicans. Um, So why won't we see Republicans condemn the president for being racist? Frankly, some of them stand with him, but the others who aren't are afraid of him. Donald Trump has almost near lock and stock barrel control of the Republican base. Uh, It is he alone who fuels, pushes turnout among this Republican base. Republicans are afraid, those who don't stand exactly with him, are afraid that speaking out publicly against this president, against his policies, to talk about some of the atrocities unfolding at the border, you know, in our name, uh, to talk about, you know, for instance, this morning, he wanted to, he appointed, um, or named or nominated Representative Ratcliffe to become the head of DNI. If a Republican were to stand up and call that wrong, to call that misguided, to call that kind of thing immoral, to call that thing, you know, for what it is, they've got to worry about a very active and virulent base supporter of Donald Trump's coming after them in primary for their home district, coming after them uh, for their offices. And so these folks are worried about their own positions in power. That isn't a strong place to be. You know, if you can't stand for what's right, if you can't stand for what is moral, what is clearly moral, then there's something you ought to be asking about yourself and your ability to lead anybody. And so that's why you're not going to hear from them. You're not going to hear from them because they, too, have run the political calculus and they have figured out that Donald Trump is in full lock control of this Republican Party and that they truly do now answer to him. Mm, you're not going to hear from them. Well, those are great words to end on today, Goldie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
And I have to say, you know, uh, I'm glad we could unpack a little bit that word yes. infested in yes. particular, because that just, as soon as I saw that, I was like, whew, that raises all kinds like, of red flags, we, dog whistle, the whole thing. Just, it, I saw people even, you know, Twitter searching infests, and you can see all the, the hot tweets that were all white supremacists and all these great, terrible things, greatly terrible things. Yes. Well, well yeah. Here's the tweet from the New York Times. Uh, more than 300 people were arrested at a protest in Moscow on Saturday over what demonstrators called unfair elections. Alexei Navalny, an opposition leader, was arrested in anticipation of the unauthorized protest and sentenced to 30 days in jail. And BuzzFeed News reporter Miriam Elder retweeted a tweet from the Moscow Times that Navalny was hospitalized with a weird allergy days after being jailed. She said this news comes the day after 1,000-plus protesters were detained in Moscow. BuzzFeed News World senior reporter and editor Hayes Brown is here to break it down for us. Good morning. Good morning, guys. All right, so what kicked off these protests, and how large were they? So they were pretty large. So the last two weeks, people have been turning up in Moscow to protest having opposition politicians cut from the ballots on Moscow city council elections, basically. Um, so for the last couple of weeks, they've been growing. Last week, uh, 22,000, I believe, people took the streets of Moscow, which is huge. And up until that point, uh, the authorities were allowing it to happen. They were letting people take to the streets and make their opposition known. This weekend was different. The Russian government seems to have said, well, enough is enough, we're done here, and started breaking up the protests before they could even gather. Um, they went to opposition politicians' houses the night before the protests were scheduled and detained them. They uh, separated people before they could coalesce in the streets. So there's no telling how many people actually turned up yesterday. The government says around 300 or so. Uh, opposition uh, forces say much more. But what we do know is about 1,300 people were detained over the course of the day to keep them from gathering on the streets. Mm. So, Hayes, who is Alexei Navalny? I feel like that's a new name that many people should know. Navalny, people should know the name. He's been around for a minute at this point. He's a lawyer and opposition leader in Russia. He has a YouTube channel with over 2 million followers and has been a constant thorn in Vladimir Putin's side since he first hit the scene uh, years ago. So he, his movement is all about trying to get more democracy, more free and fair votes in Russia, pushing back on the reduction in rights that we've seen under Vladimir Putin since he took over in 1999 in Russia. Uh, and they've just put him in jail so many times at this point. He has spent a lot of time behind bars, including uh, relatively recently, but right now he's currently hospitalized. Uh, he's been tr uh, diagnosed with uh, skin lesions. Uh, the official you know, diagnosis for all of this isn't out yet, but a doctor who's formally treated him and said that she managed to speak to him through an open door uh, briefly said that he had uh, rash on his upper body, skin lesions, and just was not doing so hot. And all of that is suspect, right? Extremely, especially when you consider the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin likes poisons. He, the Russian government is no stranger to uh, using chemicals to try and silence people who speak out against the government. Uh, Navalny has so far, you know, managed to avoid that for the most part. And again, we don't really know what is causing whatever has put him into the hospital. So this is a lot of speculation right now. Mm. So Hayes, will this unrest have any impact on U.S.-Russian relations? And can we expect the U.S. to comment on what's happening over there? I mean, we might get a, a, a relatively small comment at most from at, at the highest level, the Secretary of State, but I really doubt that this uh, pushback against democracy in Russia will warrant too much of an outcry from the Trump administration. I don't really see President Trump standing in front of cameras and denouncing 
Vladimir Putin's push to put opposition leaders behind jail to make it so that uh, his party, the United Russia Party, is the only one who can really legally run for elections in Russia. Because that's what a lot of this is about. Uh, while the people are taken to the streets because, you know, there's a lot of corruption in the Russian government, the economy is currently slowing down, the standard of living is dropping, uh, the Russian government is pushing back on this because it's basically a one-party system at this point. There are smaller parties, but United Russia, Putin's party, controls the vast majority of the you know, operation of the country. And most of that, even in the Duma, the legislator in Russia, is a rubber stamp for whatever Putin wants as the president. All right. Well, Hayes, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Mm. And we have some developing news this morning to share. Here's a tweet from George Takei. Waking up to news of the mass shootings at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California, there are at least three dead, 15 wounded. One killed was a six-year-old boy who, quote, had his whole life still ahead of him, end quote, said his father. We have failed him and all victims of gun violence, hashtag gun control now. So many of you may have woken up and heard about this right on Twitter this morning. This news happened last night around 5.30 local time in California. Uh, this garlic festival is one of the largest food festivals in the mm -hmm. United States of America. A very big place for families to uh, gather every year for a three-day festival. So this is quite heart-wrenching for folks impacted and for the nation. But again, this is not surprising. Yeah, and you know what? It's not even our lead story on the show today, which I think, you know, it can speak to uh, just how frequently we end up covering these stories that yes. that, that falls into the calculus of, yes. you know, where they fit in. It's literally every few days. Yes. So. Well, we are going to cleanse the timeline, take a deep breath. And later on in the show, I'm chatting with Orange is the New Black star, Laura Gomez. But up next, it's time for Briar Tweets. Welcome back. It's now time for the hottest part of the show, fire tweets. Ooh. Ooh. I need to stop. It's like my favorite sound. I, I support you. You know, I, I think do. it makes you happy. It I really does. You. There's little that makes me happy these days in this new cycle, so, but this does. Stick with it. But also your tweets do. So let's get into them. Brian, you tweeted. I was going 80 and slammed on my brakes because this suicidal squirrel ran across the highway. But I realized he was the homie because there was a cop ahead and I would have gotten a ticket. Some heroes have capes, others have capes. <laughs> this squirrel. I love that this, this person, squirrel. like, I do think this is hilarious and great, but like, that squirrel was probably thinking, like, girl, my life is not worth yeah, not getting a no. hundred dollars. Like, get the speeding ticket so I can live. <laughs> we may may hate to break it to that uh, that tweeter, yeah. but, uh, you know, we don't know that that was the squirrel's intention. But silver linings. Silver know? linings, silver linings. Okay, ready? Yep. Next one. Lil Nas X, you tweeted. Wow. Man, last year I was sleeping on my sister's floor, had no money, struggling to get plays on my music, suffering from daily headaches. Now, I'm gay. <laughs> y'all, y'all, see, this is why I don't understand homophobia. Being gay makes your life better. It does. Raises it up, makes you blessed, highly favored, your skin, your skin clears up. Your skin up. clears up. That. Your style gets better. Yes, and also your you friends are as, better and You come nicer. out as gay, you get to be on stage with us, Alex Berg and Zach Stafford, which you too can watch this Sunday, August 4th, Internet Live. <laughs> what a plug. There what you, a plug. You're welcome, well done. Ben, you're welcome, Ben Smith. <laughs> it's for us talking, talking about you later. <laughs> Ahmed, you tweeted. I feel like my therapist is so jealous of me and gives me the wrong advice because she wishes she could be me. 
<coughs> Caleb, are you watching? Caleb! <laughs> name my, me, name! My therapist named Caleb. That's all y'all gonna get today. Good luck finding that person. But uh, he tells me to do the most obnoxious, crazy, risky things. And I'm always like, girl, is it because you're upset with your husband? Or why you want me to do this? Or he wants you to learn from your mistakes. It's said a tactic. Like, said like it's a child a of tactic. mental health providers. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you tweeted, I hate when I lose something and my parents say, well, I guess you didn't care about it enough. Like you've lost me in the grocery store before. So... I hope this person said this to their mom and watched that mom's face just break down. She's like, damn. Well, as the child of mental health care providers, my parents never lost me because Because I may or may not have been a leash kid. I may have been a leash kid. But I've all, had enough. All I'm going to say about that, because I love leashes on kids. You know, we need to keep these kids in control, in line, all the stuff they are dogs. My parents don't want to um, lose me. Exactly. I'm going to lose you. They love you. But Alex's parents, if you're watching, we would love some content that proves this story to be true. So please tweet us using the hashtag AM to D. Oh my God. I'm glad they don't know how to tweet. <laughs> oh, what? They're going to find they're out today. They're watching. I'm going to get a text message after this. Oh my God. Tweet of the day comes from <laughs> L Budget. I feel like the erasing student loan agenda is the adult version of, if you elect me for class president, I promise we'll have pizza and ice cream for lunch every day. Woo, I have to say, uh, I think that uh, that might be true. This, that might this be, little uh, policy uh, line has made, has made me be like, you know what, this election is exhausting already, but if this is what the focal point's gonna be, bring it on, girl. I can make it this next You're ready? month. I, yes, sure. All right. If you're gonna take away that debt, yes, girl. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, well, coming up, multi-platinum artist Andy Grammer is here to talk about his new album, Naive. But up next, we are talking about kids with very online parents. Online? Yep. And watching. Yep. Welcome back. This is from A to Z, and here's a treat from our boss. BuzzFeed interviewed the 15-year-old son of editor-in-chief Ben Smith about what it is like to be raised by an extremely online parent. People were at first shocked that his son agreed to talk to his dad's outlet. Here's a tweet from Kavitha Rao. I have a 15-year-old son, and he would kill me if I wrote about him, but this seems like a hopelessly old-fashioned point of view these days. Ooh, it may be. But it was really the street from Anna the Bull that got us thinking. I can't decide if this is great or if our kids are screwed. Hmm. Well, you know, well. we are really attracted to this because you and I are millennials. We grew up as the internet kind of blossomed, and we are now hitting ages in which we see all of our friends having kids. Yeah, exactly. And, and how we notice is because they post all these pictures of their kids. And I'm sure always thinking, do. like... Does Dill Johnny want to be on Instagram already? Does I mean, he need an account at three? Yeah, that's the thing is like, I, this is starting to come up for my friends who are new parents who are now posting images of their kids and those images will be online, you know, presumably forever. 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 And it's just interesting to think that, you know, you can be a young person now and have your entire life archived yes. for you online, which uh, makes me thankful for me in particular mm-hmm. that I didn't have access to these kinds of social channels because I'm not sure that I would have uh, been savvy enough to understand how to navigate them. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, we were growing up at a time that like MySpace.com was happening, AOL, which was incredibly private, one-to-one chit-chatting, and we weren't really thinking, <laughs> one-to-three, chit-chats, lots of chit-chats. Or, yeah, um, one-to-entire entire <laughs> chat room, chit-chatting. But it was private and there was less, you know, recognizable data being used. Like we didn't, ha- it was very common for you to tell someone you don't have a picture. 
culture, and now yeah. it's impossible. Um, but back then, it was all about like us choosing what we wanted to share to the world. But now we live in an era where parents are choosing what to share with the world very publicly, and we got to grow up in the wake of that. Of like, oh, mom, you used to post my diaper pictures, and now my new girlfriend has them on her phone already. I mean, it's a whole new level. It's and a it whole may- new level, and it's kind of an interesting moment to have this conversation because the age of children getting a smartphone these days is ten point three, very very young. So parents are going to start having to have conversations not only with their child or what they're sharing, but also what are they sharing about that child? Because that child gets that smartphone and is like, Mom, why is this like, on Mom, Instagram? Mom, why are you sharing this about me? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so complicated. And look, I am not a parent. I am not here yes. to stand in judgment. I can only imagine the challenges of like having to navigate this stuff um, with a kid and just the uh, you know different uh, kind of social networking that happens uh, mm-hmm. online and the different kinds of relationships and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember like I had an email address at age nine, and my parents would monitor my AOL use, and I was terrified of strangers in general and also online. So I didn't really get into anywhere that I shouldn't have gone. Hmm, I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> and I will share that because my parents do know that. I was a big kid of the internet. I was this like gay boy in the South and I would use it to meet other gay people. And I said a lot of things that I would never tell my parents I said and I learned to be myself. And I think I turned out okay. Yeah. Maybe we're just being like, Rot, like ba- bad, like we're being our parents. Yeah, like maybe we're, we're too nervous about it. No, but I will say, like, I think especially for kids who uh, don't, you know, fit in or anybody who's ever felt like an outsider, the internet too can be the most amazing place yes. because you can find your community, you can see yes. people who are like you if you don't have them yes. around or physically where you are. So the, you so. know, what, the, what you should remember today is that you should have the conversation. If your kids are already online, talk about it. If you're an online parent talking about your kids, let's talk about it. The internet contains multitudes. Yes, multitudes. But let's take it to the timeline. What is the earliest memory of being online for you? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm And up next, I chat with multi-platinum singer-songwriter Andy Grammer. Stay tuned. Missy Walsh tweeted, I found you by Andy Grammer. Oh my God. This album keeps getting better and better. This upcoming tour is going to be insane. Hashtag naive. And joining me now to talk about that album is the multi-platinum artist himself, Andy Grammer. Thank you for joining me. Good to be here. Thank you (laughs) for having me. So um, the first thing I thought when I saw naive is that it felt like a little different than uh, some of your other work because I feel like a lot of your music are really upbeat, pop, pop. So why naive? The naive is is um, it's kind of like a rebellious way of saying I've always been the guy that smiles so much. Yeah. And I know I'm, I'm like kind of in on the joke. Like I know that some of the world will think like when you smile too much, they think you're a little daft <laughs> or like <laughs> stupid. Like don't you know the world is like pretty terrible? Yeah. Why are you smiling? And uh, so naive is like a, a way to say like listen, call me whatever you want. I'm still gonna show up and be like really really happy and smile and uh, and sing about about being positive. Yeah. Well, uh, you actually tweeted, the run-up to a release is always kind of a wild experience. Big dreams, pressures, and worries, expectations, doubts, and excitement, a roller coaster of emotions. This album kicked my ass. It did. How? How? How did it kick your ass? Well, at this point now, there's like a lot of pressure, whether you want to like look at it or not. It's just there to find magic, to find like something amazing, to find something worth singing about. And I I, I don't know, I, I hadn't found it for a long time. Hmm. So it's one thing to go into create something like excited and then when you get when you create for a long time and don't have it still then then you start getting into a weird place. Hmm. And the weird place actually brought me to some of these darker songs that I think are really really great. So songs like Don't Give Up on Me, that that comes out of a weird dark place. <laughs> or, yeah, or like My Own Hero, like these are like songs that are like oh man, I need I need to find some uh, inspiration for myself. 
Yeah, I was going to say, um, in that the longer post on Instagram um, that I just quoted from, you say, Don't Give Up On Me came from when you were in the creative wilderness. Yeah. Was that like a moment of writer's block for you? Like, sure. That yeah, yeah, it's, kind, it's kind of like writer's block or just, you know, writing stuff and, and, and trying things and being like, that's just not very good. <laughs> and if you do that enough, it'll start to get weird. Like, do I even know how to do this? Wow. Uh, I think anyone creative has these ups and downs yeah, and these doubts yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. Now, I know that you were a street performer yeah. um, a while back. Have you learned any lessons that you feel like you could even take to those moments um, when you're just struggling with the creative process? Has it, did it help you even navigate experiences with fans? Like, I can only imagine being that up close with people while you're trying to do your thing. The biggest thing that you take from being a street performer is that art is kind of subjective, but not really. Right? So when you're out on the street and you're playing, you can tell when a song is reacting with people and when it's not. So an easy thing for an artist to do is, is to write a song, and then when people don't like it or freak out over it, you go like, well, you don't get it. <laughs> you guys don't get <laughs> you it. Don't you're the get worst. Yeah. yeah. And street performing shows you like, no, no, no. There's either a hook that makes people feel something or it doesn't. And so that's what I've taken is like at every moment. The, the inf like the little thing that happens when you're watching someone street perform, I don't know the last time that you put a dollar or something in somebody's case. Hmm. Is it rare or do you do it a lot? I mean, if someone really has to catch you attention. You have to like yeah. freaking nail yeah. someone. You have to yeah. be walking by and someone's gonna be so good. They're like, oh my God, yeah. I think I love you. And here you go. Yeah. And that's what has to happen um, now online, on the radio, anywhere. So like, I just put a really high standard on what the song has to make somebody feel. Yeah, now you post quite a few videos of your daughter, and I know- She's um, in cute. Your, yeah, she's very cute. Yeah. In your last album, you said that uh, you had to like relearn words and phrases through talking to her. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of changed that message for you. Um, did your relationship with her impact this album at all? Yeah, yeah, I mean, love songs for sure. You, you can sing them to your wife, you can sing them to your daughter. On this album, there's a really sweet song called She'd Say. I lost my mom 10 years ago. Mm. And so I wrote a song about what my mother would say to my daughter. And that was really freaking sweet. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one thing I have to ask you is that um, a couple years ago, you were on stage with Taylor Swift. Yeah. And I feel like everybody asks you is fixated on this. Like I, when I was yeah. doing some research, uh, like people were asking you in interview after interview after interview about Taylor Swift. What is that like? Like, do you ever get tired of talking about no. those kinds of moments? <laughs> Taylor Swift is exceptional. Artist, community builder, songwriter, she's the gym. So I have so, no so problem. So you're cool with it. Listen, she's amazing and she really knows how to share the spotlight, which is pretty cool and rare. Yeah, that's really cool. Are there any other artists that you're really hungry to work with or even like make a little surprise appearance? At yeah, so you know, on this there? album that's coming out, I was so lucky to write with um, uh, two rappers, a guy named Andy Minio, a guy named Swoop, and then this African male choir that was wow. used on the Paul Simon Graceland album. They're uh, Ladysmith, Black Mombazo, and I got to go in and write a song with them, and that was really freaking awesome. So that was like my dream. Yeah. I'm like a huge <laughs> Paul Simon fan, and that was awesome. Yeah, so that checked off. Checked like, off. Check, I'm, I'm check good. Off. I think you're I'm done. done. You're done. I'm straight. You're done now. Yeah. You're done now. Well, uh, you're not only in music, you actually, you also have a podcast called The Good Part. Yes. Where you really get to sit down and go in depth with different artists and people um, in public life. Um, has there been a guest who surprised you with something that they've said that you've mm. asked them? Well, one of my they all surprise me. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, what's your most spiritual experience? Mm. I like to get to the edges of where, where people are in their lives. Because we, we kind of go throughout our day, and we just like live, and you got to go to work, and you got to eat, and you got to do all this stuff. And then when someone hits you with a question like, where do you think we go when we die? You're like, oh, uh, whoa, man. <laughs> Let's like take a second and feel that out. And so there, there's been a lot of incredible. I mean, Dan Reynolds had some really cool from Imagine Dragons. Lindsay Sterling, she had an incredible story about her father. Um, just like a lot of people, when, when you ask someone that, 
I don't think you even have to be like a big star to come back with an, a really interesting yeah, answer. Yeah, it would prompt a really interesting answer. It's a really interesting answer, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This awesome. really fun, yeah. And Andy Grammer's new album, Naive, is out now. More AM to DM is up next. Here's a tweet from Harshini. It's only 9.30 a.m. A girl just wants to go home and watch Pennyworth and thirst after Thomas Wayne in peace. Amen, girl. <laughs> Joining me now is Ben Aldridge, who plays Thomas Wayne on Pennyworth. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for laughing as I said, yes, girl, right, like you were standing right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did that because, you know, in addition to being our guest this morning, you are BuzzFeed's official Man Crush Monday. Oh, yes, thank you very MCM. much. MCM, how does it feel? That's, a, that's a lovely review. Uh, you know, all the millions of young people, men, women, gender non-conforming people are now thirsting even harder. <laughs> so thank you for being open to that. Oh, I'm blushing, thank uh, you very much. Let's jump yeah. into your show and not just how crushable you, you are. So, <laughs> Pennyworth, so Pennyworth is about Alfred Pennyworth, Batman's butler, and his past with Batman's father, Thomas Wayne. We yeah. have a clip, let's take a look. Let me give you my phone number. If you have any medical expenses or any other issues, then please call me. I accept full liability. And um, no need to involve the lawyers. It was a pleasure meeting you, Aubrey. Oh, that's so great. Uh, the show is fantastic, but I want to know, how do you prepare for playing a character who's most famous for dying? Uh, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? We only ever see him yes. dead in Crime Alley, murdered by Joe Chill. But um, I think... How did I prepare for it? I started by looking at all the visual depictions of him that are in the comic books and in the films, which there aren't that, that many. Um, and uh, basically got from that that he's very moral and upstanding and, mm -hmm. and phil philanthropic. But what essentially we're doing here is filling in the backstory. So it's, it's, a, it's a clean slate. Okay. And Bruno Heller, our showrunner, uh, has a wonderfully imaginative, creative brain and has kind of cooked up this brilliant, brilliant story and backstory for him. But a jumping off point for me they said when I went to meet them for an audition, they just uh, mentioned Cary Grant. Oh! Um, so they wanted him to feel like a kind of old school Hollywood movie star, which just, you know, those are big shoes to fill. Yes, those are massive shoes um, to fill. <laughs> slightly intimidating, <laughs> but it was something that I was like willing to, to jump into, obviously. So yeah, that was, that was fun. I think you're doing a good job at it too. Thank you very much. That's a great, it's a great comparison. I love Cary Grant. I do enjoy you on the show and all Me the too. other shows, which we will get to the other ones. But before <laughs> working on Pennyworth, were you a fan of Batman as a comic or as a, a movie or anything? You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, they'll kill me. But oh, I, no, please I, I do, was, now you have to say this. I mean, no, that builds up too much. But, um, <laughs> I, I was more of an X-Men cartoon fan. Uh, that was my Saturday morning jam when I woke up, is watching X-Men. So Marvel, shouldn't say Marvel, but yeah, yeah, Marvel. And then my introduction to Batman, I think, was the Tim Burton films. Uh-huh. So I, uh, yeah, I remember... Uh, what, was it Michelle it? Pfeiffer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 why? Wait, you're turning red. What happened? Oh, uh, blushing. Yeah, I just, I was, I just became obsessed with, <laughs> with the, the scene where she gets, um, she's laying unconscious, bitten by, cats, uh -huh. and that's how she transforms into Catwoman. And then she goes to the the fridge and drinks a pint of milk, and she makes her costume. And after seeing that film, I, <laughs> in my young ten year old brain, uh -huh. it's like there needs to be a Catman. So I uh, immediately went to the kitchen where my parents were cooking dinner. I went to the fridge, drank, <laughs> drank a pint of milk, went upstairs and uh, put on loads of black clothing. And I, then I <laughs> took to the streets of my hometown, jumping around, being 
Catman. I, ooh, that just was like a whole ass ride for me. <laughs> I did not, whenever a man, a straight man says, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer, I'm thinking like sex, whatever. Not I wore a black cat suit and drank milk all day. I just, it was a cat suit, but yeah, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, it was, it was black. <laughs> well, wow, I, can't, I wanna see photos of this. I, Twitter, find them, please, and send them to me. Find well, them, it's a challenge. So you spoke of past Batmans, and I'd love to know, would your character raise, you know, Christopher Nolan Batman or Michael Keaton? Um, Christopher Nolan, I think. Okay. I think. I think Pennyworth is is more of that vein, and it's like a very dark, twisted psychological drama. I think, and that's the way they're all headed. So yeah, I think it would be Christian Bale. Oh, Christian I basically Bale. picked the coolest one there, haven't I? The coolest uh, one and yeah, the yeah. darkest one. He's yeah, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty dark, and the show is a pretty dark setting. Yeah, um, and it's in 1960s London. Yes. While making this, what was your favorite historical detail that you had to be around or work with? Ooh, um, what would it have been? I think just the the fashion and the music of the time. So mm. the, 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 the piece has loads of incredible music in it. Mm-hmm. Our first scene opens with a Rolling Stones track. And uh, looking at that period, the mod, punk, rock, all of that, and our, and our sets, uh, yeah, just the kind of where it's set, basically. The okay, the setting. Yeah, well, yeah. what about the moustache? Because that's a oh, very yeah, noticeable yeah. thing. <laughs> yes. It's a great moustache, but what do you the think moustache. about it? Are you keeping it because it's gone right now? Yeah, so the moustache, yeah, I, I found that hard to get rid of. It was my, it was my choice. And I, he basically, all the depictions of him, he always had a moustache, Thomas Wayne. So I was like, yes. I'll, they said, do you want to grow one? I said, yes. And then when it came to getting rid of it, uh, I, I mourned it. I was mm. like, I don't make sense anymore. My clothes didn't make sense. <laughs> Your personality, my face it. didn't make sense. Yeah, it was like it was like uh, what's that Bible story where he cuts his hair off? I have no idea. And it's Monday. I should have been at church. Yesterday. <laughs> I should have been in church. Gosh. Well, speaking of church, Samson is Samson. Samson. Yes. yes, that is right. Cuts That's his right. hair off. All the power yes. is gone. Yes. Well, Thanks speaking me. of religion, you know, Fleabag, which you were also on, has yes. become a religious experience for many people. <laughs> um, and you were the arse guy in uh-huh. it, which I loved. Arsehole um, guy which has levels. <laughs> arsehole. Sorry, arsehole. Arse guy. God, I just I began with arse, and I just went on a different route. Yeah. But could you always tell that Phoebe was going to be this huge star? Who is, if people don't know, the star of Fleabag? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I've ever met someone and been like star, but I knew, but, um, I knew from reading the scripts and working on it, yeah. I think, I think none of us knew that it was going to resonate the way it did. Mm. And, it, and it really has. Uh, but I th- there, there was like a buzz on set and it was just fu- it was fun to make. I think anything that you're, that you're really enjoying being in mm-hmm. and that you can be proud of being in, you, you hope for the best with it because you, you want other people to have that experience. And I think that, that's what happened with Fleabag. Okay. Well, I, you cannot leave the set until I ask you this one question about your, I think your competition on the show, which is the hot priest who's season two. He became <laughs> yes. like the biggest star on social media because people were all wanting to sleep with their priests now. Yeah. But you were the original hot guy of the show. You were season one. One, you wear the Man Crush Monday for all of us every day. Are you mad at all this like kind of hype around the uh, the priest? No, no, not at all. I mean, credit where credit's due. He, he deserves it. He's actually a very good friend of mine. So no, th- thrilled for him. <laughs> thrilled for it. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank and you. standing here as I tell you that you were crushable, I feel like that must be tough. It's easy for me to do, but it's tough for you. It's, <laughs> ma- it's making me sweat. Well, you... <laughs> Well, you can see Finn on Pennyworth Sunday nights on Epics. Up next, Alex is talking to Laura Gomez from Orange is the New Black. Netflix just dropped the 
final season, so sad, of Orange is the New Black. And today I'm here with one of the stars of the show, actor Laura Gomez. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, before uh, we started this segment, I was just like, I cannot even imagine what this past week has been like for you. Um, of course, the premiere party was last week. Did it feel bittersweet at all? It's absolutely. It's all sorts of mixed emotions. And, but the, the funny thing is it also feels right, hmm. you know, to leave on a high note. Uh, we would have not wanted to disappoint our audience who have been so faithful and so frantic about everything that we've been saying, so supportive. And I think season seven is the perfect ending for a perfect show. Mm. Now, we've had several of the cast members of Orange is the New Black come on this show, mm. and everyone always really remarks about how tight-knit the cast is. So what was it like to have that last day shooting the series? <laughs> for me, it was the most surreal because I had, I don't want to give any spoilers to people no who spoilers. are yet catching up, but I was by myself for some specific reasons that you'll find out, you know, eventually. Um, and it was very odd. Um, however, it, the, the premiere was the perfect space to kind of reunite, to really give each other the right, the goodbye as, as it should. And it's a see you later, because some of us still see each other or chat. Um, so, you know, I miss um, my hair and makeup crew a lot. Oh, well, yeah, it's like everybody you work with on set so consistently. Yes. I imagine you, know, you become uh, very uh, almost familial with them yes. in a way. Um, you said that that last day was odd. Was that because, like, you were alone having to shoot your scene? The last like scene, it was, yeah, I had to travel to L.A. for one final scene that I had by myself. So I finished in New York. There was, like, the whole element of finishing, but then there was an extra thing, so it felt so isolated um, and yet that's the nature of this business so it, you, you take it as you, in actors we are a rare breed we have to <laughs> deal with stuff <laughs> yeah now your character Blanca Flores goes through quite a transformation over yes. the course of all seven seasons of the show yeah. when you started out did you anticipate that she was going to go through that kind of transformation oh no, no I never even anticipated that I was going to be more than two or three episodes I mean I was supposed to be this character with a possible recurring and never in my life would I have imagined that it would be this journey, uh, let alone this powerful, impactful um, presence, you know, and, and in a way revolutionary. She ends up being quite a quite an individual who stands to, to abuse an authority, mm -hmm. I think. Well, well speak, I mean, speaking of those themes, um, this season, of course, touches on ICE and immigration. Um, she has a really brutal and timely yeah. uh, storyline. So, yeah. you know, what, what was it like to, um, you know, act in a show that uh, so parallels everything that's happening right now? You know, it was a very powerful, but also very emotional um, season for, for me particularly being, it was, a, a series of emotions because it was a it's part of it's a privilege to be in a show this important it's a gift as an actor to be a part of such an important topic this is happening in real time so we're mirroring society and um i'm dealing with emotions that are have to do with real people are going through this i'm portraying an, a fictional character that is mirroring that and we have organizations like freedom for immigrants that are mentioned in the show actually um, so in, in, there's a scene where Gloria mentions them, and it has been important to me as a person also to, to be uh, educated about everything that's going on on a deeper level. And I think that's what season seven is doing. It's making you look at reality. You cannot escape it. Mm. Well, you're, you're, you get quite political on Twitter as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, has the show inspired you to be more outspoken in that kind of way? Yes, I think 
you know, I've always been very, very aware. It's my nature and also I come from a very um, gladly, uh, I have very educated parents who helped, who taught me to think and to be a part of something, you know. And then this show comes to kind of emphasize um, uh, what's already in my instincts. And I think educating me on subjects that maybe would have not been in not only my radar, but our radar, right? It made it mainstream to talk about prison reform and uh, privatization of prisons and now detention centers and how this is a part of a uh, capitalistic process of making money out of immigrants and, and prisoners. It's just not right. So it's like you need to be a part of the resistance or else you're a part of problem. Hmm. Well, I want to look forward to the next chapter of what you're going to be working on. Um, you're working on a, a movie called Sunshine, right? I, uh, what, <laughs> I yeah. just finished shooting that oh, in the Dominican Republic. Yes. Um, what can you tell us about this project? It's fun. Well, for me, it's important to be connected to Latin America. I'm from Dominican Republic, and it's been a gift to be a part of that um, that movement of cinema over there, because I feel it's all connected, and these are human stories that are also weird. I'm telling about where I'm coming from. So it was important for me. I'm developing now writing two projects that I plan to shoot between New York and Dominican Republic. I also am planning to direct. So I'm kind of leaning in that direction. And it was kind of the step, a step forward to that. I did a film before called Samba that went to Tribeca and it went, it went really well in film festivals. And I think that Sunshine is going to be the same. Uh, a very different character from Blanca and something that takes me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> so, and now, and now I'm here, um, you know, looking for a job, guys. <laughs> but also writing yeah. those roles that are not always given to us. And I think that's something that we actively have to do. So I'm very inspired in that, in that sense. Like I'm actively writing uh, screenplays and plays yeah. um, for women and for women of color. Yeah, well, I have to ask you, um, before we go, is there anything that you're going to miss the most about playing Blanca? Oh, my God. You know, it's been such a gift to be a part of a show that is talking about this important topic. So every time I read a, screen, a, a script, it felt important. It didn't feel like I'm just playing something out of the air. I'm going to miss the depth of our show, and I'm going to miss the familiarity of our set, you know, coming to a set where everybody knows your name. It's like going to Cheers type of thing. Um, so that, I will miss the depth of Blanca Flores. But, you know, hopefully I get to, to I'm building something, and hopefully it will translate into other roles. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. And of course, the final season, I'm so sad I'm going to keep <laughs> saying it, of Orange is the New Black is on Netflix now. Up next, Zach and I read your tweets. <laughs> Welcome back. It's now time for Add Us, where we hear from you and what you thought of the show and the topics and the tea, girl. <laughs> yes, I just have to say, I love talking to Laura Gomez about oh. Orange is the New Black. People really remark that she is so, so, so different yes. from her character, and her character really changes so much of the course yes. of all seven seasons. It was making me so sentimental about the show. Yes, we've had so many of the cast members on the show the last few weeks, and it just keeps hitting us even harder that, like, you know, this show, people forget, launched People Netflix. forget. Yeah. It raised, like, it was like the tide that rose a thousand ships, and it's why we all have streaming services now, because the show was so successful. Yeah. So it is kind of incredible, and it's why we've spent so much time with the cast here to really think about that impact and what yeah. it's done, especially for people like us, queer people who live on the margins. So, yeah, yeah it's a really great time, and you did oh. a great, great job. Well, we wanted to know what the, what 
was the worst thing your neighbors have ever done. Lisette I'm so says, excited to read these. I'm so excited. Lisette says, my neighbor likes to sit and tan while sitting in his convertible. A flex. Oh. Sitting in the convertible. Is he naked? Are they naked? I don't know their gender pronouns. Like laying. I don't understand. I don't. I mean, do you want to be sitting in your car? Do you like lean your seat back? I have questions. All right. Ugh. Who knows? Who knows? Cini Martinez tweeted this after our fire tweet about a jealous therapist. My therapist is jealous of me. I think that's called a moment of clarity. <laughs> Ooh, oh, drag, girl, drag, wow. I think maybe you have some uh, thinking to do. All right, so. well, this has changed my life. Yeah. Well, Rachel Hey Girlfield, <laughs> I love your your name, girl. Rachel Hey Girlfield uh, tweeted the following after our conversation on being raised by online parents. It's not just parents. Some grandparents want to share pictures online of their grandkids. I know some grandparents will post photos online even if parents say no. That is <gasps> savage. Can you imagine that? Like, you have your kid. You're like, I don't want to post photos of my kid. Your parents go and do and it. Grandparents have, like, the goods. Those oh, ones yeah. Have baby photos. They have photos of your it's parents true. looking a mess. Wow, the OG petty, your grandma. All right. <laughs> well, thank you to our guests, Hayes Brown, Goldie Taylor, Laura Gomez, Andy Grammer, and Ben Aldridge. Mm, and we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. The last Tuesday of July. Uh, last Tuesday. <laughs> so sorry.